Amen, church family. We will very much need the Lord if we're going to live out where James takes us today. But before we get there, I don't know if we have any history buffs or specifically English history buffs in the room this morning, but uh, you need to know about Thomas Beckett. Just by chance, does anybody actually know who Thomas Beckett is? We got a couple. Okay. Okay, so you're going to know where this is going. Okay, Thomas Beckett, 1,100 years ago, uh, in 1162, Thomas Beckett was appointed by his friend, the King of England, Henry II. He was appointed as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, he had served for the several years prior to that as the Chancellor, and what Henry was trying to do in putting his buddy as the Archbishop was to curb some of the growing power that the church had over the crown and and help influence things. Unfortunately, Thomas took to his new role with gusto, and over the next several years, he, he didn't do what Henry desired him to do, and conflict began to arise. And in 1164, Thomas Becket flees for his life, takes exile in France. Now, as the years go by, we get to 1170, and, and several things have gone on. Uh, ultimately, King Henry II's gone to the, the rival of the Archbishop of York, or of Canterbury, that would be the Archbishop of York. He's had the Archbishop of York co-crown, or crown his son co-king with him, and uh, all these different factors. Ultimately, Thomas Becket is able to come back. He is welcomed with open arms by the people. So he comes back, but, but in order to take a shot, he, he decides to excommunicate the Archbishop of York. And all these things fester up. And ultimately what happens is Henry II is, is there in his, in his palace and, and he makes this statement. Now there's a variety of ways it's been recorded. I'll read you the long way, then I'll, I'll give you the short version. Here's, here's what he said. What miserable drones and traitors have I nourished and brought up in my household, a.k.a. How is it that everybody in my court doesn't ever do what I want them to do? Who let their Lord be treated with such shameful contempt by low-born cleric, or simply put, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Now, historians debate the way it's always pictured is, is Henry II was just frustrated there on December 29th of 1170, and he, he just, in the carelessness of his words, would somebody just deal with this problem? And so four of his knights leave his castle and proceed to go down and attempt to arrest the Archbishop of Canterbury. Archbishop resists arrest, goes inside, and ultimately where this story ends up and and is in a very gruesome and awful uh, murder by the four knights of Thomas Becket. And then things go from there and there and there. Now, why on earth do you start a sermon with that story? Here's why. Scripture says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. And and what happened to Thomas Beckett is is a quite literal reality of the tongue holding the power of death. And one careless, flippant word of, of a frustrated king, four knights looking to please and gain splendor, ended the life of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And where James is taking us, church family, as we've been walking through the book of James, he has been bringing us to this reality that that real true faith, that real true faith 
produces works and does the word of God. And, and some of those mean, he's, he's talked about the tongue, he's talked about us being people who ask, who use our words to ask God for wisdom. He's spoken about us as being people who are quick, ready to hear, who are hesitant to speak. He's, he's thrown out in chapter one that unless someone bridles their tongue, unless they control their speech, their practice of worship is, is worthless, it's empty, it, it, it lacks content. And all of a sudden we get to James chapter three and he's gonna expand on this in a great way. So I invite you, if you've got your Bibles or if you're using the Pew Bible, James chapter three. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can see the page number on the screen. And here's what he says. He says, let not many of you or, or do not many of you become teachers knowing that as such we will incur a greater or a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. Now we're gonna pause there because he starts off this section with, with, a, with a zinger of a statement. He says, listen, most of you, many of you, do not, do not seek out the, the role, the office, the place of a teacher. And it goes to show you, church family, that not a lot's changed with, with people. Back in the first century, you had a bunch of people who saw the teacher in the church. They saw the esteem that that person was held and they saw the authority that that person was under and they said, ooh, I wanna be like that. I wanna be like that. Or translated into today, oh, man, I, I maybe you're a man in the room. I, 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 wanna, I'm, I wanna be a pastor. I mean, you think about all, all the conferences you get to speak at and the amount of people who listen, oh yeah, I wanna be a pastor. Or you say, no man, I, I, wanna, be, I wanna be the next great Sunday school teacher, grow group teacher, whatever kind of group, small group we wanna call it, leader, but the teacher of that small group and have the biggest, or, or, or maybe it's if we keep trending it down, I, I watch this with a lot of college and so I wanna have this platform via social media where I can teach people truth, where I can do this. And here's what James says as far as being someone who sits in some kind of capacity and teaches truth. He says, listen, slow down. He says, don't be so eager to go after that. Let not many of you, he doesn't say don't teach. God has clearly given individuals in the church the gift of teaching. God is clearly in the position of pastor called and ordained uh, certain men to come and stand in as authoritative uh, teachers and, and leaders in his church. He doesn't say no one should teach, but he says you better be careful. Don't you seek it out. Let me put it in more clear terms. Don't you seek it out unless God has truly called you. Why? Because if you stand in that capacity, there is a greater judgment. Now by judgment, he doesn't mean a, a judgment as if somehow, if, if, if God calls you, uh, you know, God's called me to be a pastor, therefore I'm teaching the word. Wow, we'll find out if I get into heaven or not. That's not what he means by judgment. He's talking about what scripture refers to as the judgment seat of Christ. That place where for all of us as followers of Christ, if you've been saved by grace through faith, you will, at the end of your life, you will stand before Jesus Christ. Heaven is not what's on the line. Heaven and eternity are secured by the blood of Christ, never by our works. That judgment though is an evaluation of the faithfulness and content of our lives as a person who has been saved by the blood of Christ. And it says, if you're a teacher, not only are you gonna stand and give an account for your life, there's going to be a stricter or greater judgment where you're gonna give an account, not just for your life, but did you teach the truth? 
Did your life back up you teaching the truth? And in how you taught the truth, did you lead people to the truth or did you somehow lead them astray by one reason or another? He says, there's gonna be this greater judgment and the reason you should not be so eager to go after it, he says, is because we all stumble. And that word stumble there is not the idea of an intentional, deliberate, I'm gonna decide to do something disobedient. This is not the toddler who looks at you and is about to do what they know not to do and you say, don't you do it. And they get that smile and they go and they do it. That, that's not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about walking down, walking through the parking lot and your foot hitting a pothole and crashing to the ground. We're talking about a carelessness that leads one to make mistakes. It says, listen, we all stumble. There is in our life carelessness where we don't back up what we teach or, or where maybe, maybe we were trying to make some really uh, snazzy and, and, and awesome illustration and example and we stretched the truth or, or we misapplied something or we, we are all prone to stumble. So he says, you be careful. Do not eagerly seek the ministry of the teacher. So church family, understand what this means in here. It means if God calls you in some capacity, gifts you with the gift of teaching, calls you to serve in a role, maybe it's a small group leader, maybe it's a women's Bible study, a men's Bible study, uh, may, maybe, there, uh, maybe there are some young men in this room that God is, is stirring and working on your heart to call you into vocational ministry. If God calls you, follow His call, but be on guard against seeking a position for the glory you think it has. Understand there is a greater judgment for those whom set themselves as teachers of the Word. And if you're in a teaching capacity in this room today, you're one of our Grow Group teachers, you're one, you understand and, and let's be clear. We better live out what we preach and teach. And we better preach and teach what the Word says alone and not our opinion. And that is binding on me that's binding on our other four pastors. And it's a reminder because it is easy to slip and stumble into sin. Stories are littered with pastors who can preach the heavens down and then the secret sin of their life exposes that they never lived an ounce of it. In fact, I don't remember his name, but there was a, there was a pastor a young man, his dad was a pastor, came over from England. This was early in the colonies, and I believe it was in South Carolina. He, was, he, he knew how to preach. So church had him in, and he's preaching the gospel, except he's actually not even saved. He just knows how to preach really well and knows he can make money off of it. And in the middle of his sermon, he stops his sermon because God convicts him as he's preaching, and he gives his life to Christ on the pulpit. They're, they're, that story, the, even those are real. So church family, understand, he, he opens up with this warning towards those who would be driven, those who would be envious, those who would desire to be, be teachers, and he gives this warning, but then he goes on to say, so he gives this warning because we all stumble in many ways, but look what he says, if anyone does not stumble in word and what they speak, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder 
wherever the inclination and desire of the pilot goes. So also, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. So having given this warning to those who as teachers, what's the primary means of teaching? It's using your mouth and speaking. He moves from those who would seek that and all of a sudden opens it up. And he's gonna, he's gonna make two statements in here that, that lead us to see the power of the controlled tongue. And, and what he says at first is he says this, if, if any person, if any person is able to, to control, if any person is able to bridle what they speak, if, if any person has mastery over their mouth, says they actually have the ability to exercise self-control over all parts of their being. Says there is a maturity that comes with being the master of your mouth, and that maturity, if you are able to be self-controlled and disciplined in, in, in what, is, what is spoken, that maturity actually carries over into the other areas in the rest of your life. Not only that, but then he gives these examples of, of nature. Now, I don't know the last time that you, you got ready for church and you made sure to get out there and, and put the bridle in your horse's mouth and get your carriage ready and, and come on down. So maybe that example's lost, but the idea is you've got the bridle that fits in the mouth. It, it's this small little thing. It's, it's not a saddle. It's not, it's not a, a stick. It's, it's just this small thing in the mouth. But if you have that bridle in the horse's mouth, then this this animal of power, you are able to direct where it goes. Not only that, but then he says, think even bigger. Think of the large uh, ships at sea with the, with the large sails. And you think at sea of the mighty winds that, that we have no control over. Yet somehow in spite of those winds, boats get where they need to go. How? Because there is this small little piece of wood down at the back of the rudder that is able to harness the mighty power of the wind like the bridle harnesses the power of the horse and that rudder is able to dictate where the ship goes and it says so also your tongue it's a small part of your body it's not big you don't you don't see it uh, outwardly it's a small part of your body and yes i tried to actually figure out what percentage of your body the tongue makes up just to drive home the point couldn't find it so we're just going to go with what scripture says it's a small part of your body but it boasts of so many great things it speaks of so many great things. It, it lays out there so many different ideas, good and bad. Mouths can claim a lot. So understand what he says here, church family. He speaks with these imageries, and, and what, what he drives home here, there's two aspects of what he drives home. One aspect is of maturity, that the person who is able to control what they say, there is a maturity that carries over into other parts of the life. Well, why is that? Well, think about it with me. Because what you and I say, the words that we use, they're so easy. We can say things we're serious about. We can say things we're not serious about at all. We can throw words out flippantly, easy. The sins of the tongue, they demand little effort. If I want to physically beat you up, that takes a lot. 
If I want to slander you, you can do it like that. To master the tongue is a sign of wisdom, of of a kind of self-control and a maturity over the other parts of our being, which means this. Here's the reality for some of us. For some of us, we have continued battles with sin that we can't figure out why we can't seem to exercise the self-control of the Holy Spirit over these areas of our life. And the root cause may be because we run our mouth and say whatever we want to say, whenever we want to say it, however we want to say it. That's one of the implications. If the person who, who has mastery, if the one who is able to bridle their mouth has the ability to control the rest of the body, that is the implication. And by the way, when we say mastery over the tongue, we don't mean just the ability to, to control when you audibly make noise. You can speak out loud in front of a group of people. You can speak out loud to and with another person. You can speak privately where very few ears listen. And you and I can speak inwardly. Listen to how one, listen to how one writer phrased it. We cannot think without formulating thoughts and words. We cannot plan without describing to ourselves step by step what we intend to do. We cannot imagine without painting a word picture before our inward eyes. We cannot write a letter or a book without talking it through in our minds. We cannot resent without fueling the fires of resentment and words addressed only to ourselves. We cannot feel sorry for, other, uh, for ourselves without listening to the self-pitying voice which tells us how hard done we are. But if our tongue were so under control that it refused to formulate the words of self-pity, the images of lustfulness, the thoughts of anger and resentment, then these things are cut down before they ever have a chance to live. What he's saying here is not that if we're mature, we'll be quiet. Words are needed. God gave us mouth. God calls us to speak. But it's that the tongue is controlled to speak as he desires. And that maturity there carries over to the other areas of life. So there is a maturity to controlling the tongue, but he also shows there is a power to controlling the tongue. There is a power. There is a power. When you have that bridle in the, in the horse's mouth, you're not just sitting still. You're going somewhere. When you're in that ship being tossed to and fro and you have the ability to turn that rudder to direct where you're going this way and that way. There is a power in harnessing. There is a power in the controlled tongue. And we see this all over the place. If one is able to control the tongue, there, there is a power that comes with that. Think about it. Part of our history, right? The great speeches that arouse people to action. Give me liberty or give me death. Or think about any great war movie you've ever seen. They can take our lands, they can take our homes, they can never take our freedom, we charge into battle. Think about any football movie you've ever seen. The halftime speech. There is power. In the harnessing of words, there is power to move people to action. There is power, and it shouldn't be shocking to us. As beings made in the image of God, how did God create? Through his word. How does James say he saved us, birthed us anew through the word of truth? 
If we're made in the image of God whose very word has power to do, then understand. It is why scripture says, in the power of the tongue is life and death. The ability to give life, the ability to offer death. The tongue is powerful. In church family, we must be diligent to be marked as a people by the proper, mature, controlled use of the tongue. To be people who, who speak as Scripture tells us to speak with encouragement and sincerity, with kindness, with gentleness, who speak the truth driven by love. We must be people who exercise and steward the power of the tongue well for the glory and the purposes of God. Now, having seen the power and maturity of a controlled tongue, James goes a direction that the more I've meditated on this passage, the more it, it just strikes me as surprising. Because the more I meditate, the more I process through it, the more I go, what I would expect is, okay, now there's power in the tongue, great. So now church family, here's all the ways we ought to speak, but that's not where he goes yet. We'll see that next week. Look where he goes this week. So also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell itself. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea has been tamed, is tamed, and has been tamed by the human race. But no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly venom. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the image and likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor salt water produce fresh. All of a sudden, having established the power of the tongue, he makes a turn. He says, see. He says, look. It's, it's an imperative command that is structured in the Greek in a way that is, it is the most urgent and passionate way you can give a command in the Greek language. Let's put it this way. Church family, my brothers and sisters, wake up, open our eyes, see and recognize the power of the tongue and recognize that the tongue, though small, is powerful to destroy. All it takes, he says, the tongue is, see how great a forest is set aflame by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. And he throws imagery that would be as easy for them to see as it is for us. How many times have we seen on the news a massive, beautiful forest, all different kinds, woods, we've seen tall trees, we've seen brush, lit ablaze by fire which rolls through that land, it destroys the plants, it destroys the animals, it burns down people's homes, it traps and ensnares, it takes life. And then you come to find out it was all started because of a flippant spark off a cigarette someone tossed out the window. That's what he's saying, the tongue is a fire. That the power of the tongue, all of a sudden, instead of going this way, he says, wake up and see, the tongue is a fire. 
the very world of iniquity. It's, it's a strange phrasing to, to us in English, but what he's saying is the tongue, the tongue is the sum total, all of the unrighteousness that exists in the world, it sits on the tongue. The, t- the tongue is the, the means of, uh, of unrighteousness. The tongue is what comes forward. Not only that, he says, but the tongue is set, or maybe your Bible says constitutes. It's an interesting uh, verb that there's d- debate over, but uh, as far as, is, is it passive? Did someone set it there? Did it? But the verb is a middle verb, which means this, the tongue. The tongue itself assumes a position amongst our being. It assumes a position, and it assumes a position where it does this. In its arrogance, it assumes a position where the tongue defiles the entire body. Body there not meaning just physically, but referring to the whole of our being. The tongue defiles. The tongue The tongue does not just, words don't just roll off our tongue and evaporate into air, but the tongue is such a fire that what it says has the ability to defile our being. And if it defiles our being, speaking words of, uh, of inappropriate fire, it certainly can pierce another's being. It says that it sets on fire the course of our life, meaning the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs, the coming here, the going there, all of the living days of our life, the tongue sets ablaze. There is no part of life that is safe from its burn. Not only that, but, but where the fire of the tongue come from itself, it says from hell. Now, some of you who've been on Wednesday nights will say, well, wait a minute, pastor, what do we mean by hell? If hell's the place where God pours out his justice on, on, on those who are, unbelie- who are set against him, who are unbelievers, who die without him, the demons and Satan, what does he mean? Well, he's using hell in a way that we would often use hell. All of that's true. Hell's not Satan's kingdom. It's a place of God's justice. What he's using there is hyperbole. Let me phrase it this way. It's set on fire by the enemy, by Satan himself. That's how he's using the phrase there. That the fire, the nastiness, the deadly venom and poison of the tongue, where does it come from? It's a a tool in the hands of the enemy to bring division, chaos, death, destruction, says, wake up, see the reality of the danger, see the fury of the fire. See the fury of the fire, and as you see the fury of the fire of the tongue, understand this, that as a human being, that there is a restlessness, there is an un... I was about to make up a word, I won't make up a word. Let me phrase it right here. There is an unruliness of the tongue. Think about it. Use the example of animals, church family. We have found a way as humans, and we've done it for a long time, to harness, to utilize every animal. And the, rea- the reality is there is no animal that given the, the proper equipment in your hands that any human ever fears. We have tamed them all. Now, someone go, well, we don't have every animal in a zoo. I'm not saying we put them all in a zoo. But we have found the ability to tame, to deal with, to work with every kind of animal that there is. These powerful and mighty beasts who have a mind of their own. And it says that there is an unruliness to our tongue that though man has found a way to tame every kind of beast for for the utilization of his own good, it says no human can tame the tongue. No human in and of themselves can tame the tongue. The tongue is unruly. The tongue in many times is what controls humans. Have we not seen that? More and more as time goes on in the last decade, have we not watched as words, even in the public sphere, words over social media, they have become more venomous, more angry, more hostile, 
all of a sudden we, we look around and we see ourselves and people saying things we never dreamed would come out of our mouth. And understand, it won't get better because no human can tame the tongue. And I say, well, pastor, wait a minute. If taming of the tongue is a mark of maturity, if taming of the tongue and controlling the tongue is a power that can be used for it, well, what hope have we? Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. For now, just mark. The tame cannot be tongued by the power of man. It says there's a duplicity with the tongue that, that with our mouth, with our tongue, in, in one moment we will, we will be over here singing, Lord, I need you, Lord, I need you. Then we'll walk out, get, get in the car, and scream at the kids to sit down and shut their mouths because they're being annoying. And the reality is they're just energetic because they've had to sit through a sermon for the last hour. We sit there with our mouths and we say, oh God, you are so good. You are so good. Thank you for the mercy that you've shown me. And then the guy who dropped the ball at the office comes in, says, hey man, I dropped the ball. And we just proceed to rip him to shreds with our words. Oh, Lord, we want to be your witnesses. We want to be your light. Oh, Lord, we want people to know we're yours. Oh, man, I can't believe that politician said that. I'm going to hop on Facebook and make sure everybody knows the venom of my thoughts. We can go on down the line with example after example after example, but understand there is a duplicity. There is a duplicity with how the tongue is used, even in our lives as believers. And he says, brothers, sisters, he said, this is not proper. This is not how it should be. It should not be this way. Why should it not be this way? Because the tongue also reveals. It reveals the heart. And he gives the example, does a a fountain send out both fresh and bitter water? Does a vine produce figs and vice versa? Does salt water produce fresh? No, the reality is in all those examples, what something is can only produce what it is. He's simply stating in another way what Christ has already said clearly in the Gospel of Matthew, that the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Why should there not be this duplicity where we praise God with one breath and we use our words and like a sword with another breath? Why should it not be? Because if we are in Christ, brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, we have been made new by the word of truth. And the word of truth, which is transforming our lives by the power of God himself, the Holy Spirit who lives within us, it should not be that out of redeemed hearts come unregenerate words. But it does. And this is why he says before going on, he says, church family, wake up. See the danger of the tongue. Do not turn a blind eye to the fury and damage our tongues can cause. No more going, oh, I'm I'm just kidding. No, really, I took a pot shot at you in the name of sarcasm, but I'm just kidding. No more, hey, you know what, they can handle it. It's tough love. Tough love? What, What even is tough love? Or, and, and I do this too, and I'm not saying that, again, don't hear me. There is an appropriate way to kid with people. There's an appropriate way when it's truly something funny, something that's not harmful, something that. But even this, oh, I'm just giving you a hard time. Why? 
Could you imagine God doing that? God, this is stuff. Oh, don't worry. I'm just giving you a hard time there, Wes. Now don't, don't be afraid. You ever go, hey, pastor, that was a horrible example. And I go, okay. And you go, I'm just giving you a hard time. I, don't worry. Don't, don't overblow this. But understand, it should not be. We have to wake up and see that our tongues can be a fire that is reflective of a world of unrighteousness. It can be a fire that both pollutes and damages our own body and soul and pierces and wounds another. It is a fire that can, that can rage and burn every aspect through all seasons of our lives because out of our mouth, Scripture says, we can speak falsehoods. Lying, white lies, big lies, manipulations. We can slander, we can gossip, we can curse. By the way, curse there isn't just something goofy like, I curse you. Curse there is the idea that you are actively wishing God to remove his hand of favor and blessing towards someone and pour down only his wrath upon them. That's what curse means. I wish you to be obliterated, to get it and to get it bad. We can criticize we joke in coarse and profane ways. We need to recognize that our tongues can be a fire that snuffs out life, that our tongues can be used duplicitly, that, that we possess the ability as believers. And all of us are guilty. So go, Lord, you are good. Lord, I praise you. Lord, you are great. And then to slam someone. How many have been offended by Christians who praise God with their mouths and then curse and belittle other people with the same mouth? How many children have grown up in Christian homes where they were chewed out and screamed at? How many spouses have been verbally abused in Christian homes? How many lost have engaged with Christian coworkers or classmates or teammates only to hear words that destroy and tear down and belittle? And I'm not saying we can't use our words to deal with hard situations and confrontation. Scripture's clear we do that. We're not talking about confrontation. We're talking about condemnation. We're talking about tearing people down. And we need to recognize, part of, part of the reason I think James says C is we need to recognize all of us have a tendency to default to the negative with our mouth. Why is being a critic a high paying job? Or as my dad taught me, they give you an assignment as a student, you've got to do a book review. And so the, do the first, two, first page is a summary, the next two page is a critique. And you're going, well, I agreed with everything. I don't know what to critique. And my dad says, no, no, no. Critique doesn't mean it's always got to be bad. You can also, part of a good critique is to point out what's positive. But in our minds, we hear the word critique, we instantly go negative. Or I remember back in high school, junior year, baseball season, there was a new coach that I had never met before. And he comes up to me one day and he goes, he goes, hey, Wes, what happened last fall in the Austin Regents game talking about football season? But well, what happened is I played horrible that game on offense, dropped every pass thrown at me. I had a bunch of hands of bricks. And he would ask me about this all the time. And it blew my mind. Here's why. Because we played 11 games that season. That's the only game where I dropped passes. Not only that, but that season in, in playoffs, we had the number three ranked team in state the first round of playoffs. We were losing 19 to nothing with four minutes left in the third quarter. That's legit. I have not just telling you a football story. 19 to nothing with four minutes left in the third quarter. We won 22 to 19. I was the leading receiver of that game with almost 100 yards. And my last, the last two touchdowns, it was my catches that set them up. Doesn't bring any of that up. Just, hey, what happened in this one game? 
Now, I say that precisely to give a little levity, but understand, we are prone. We are prone towards the negative with our mouths. We do it with our roommates, do it with our spouses, do it with our kids, do it with coworkers. We are prone to the negative. We are not prone towards encouragement. We are not prone. Instead, we're prone towards fire, to an uncontrolled fire, by the way. Controlled fire is a good thing. Controlled fire is how you boil water to get pure water. Controlled fire is how you cook meat to get sustenance. Controlled fire is how you heat your house. It's out of control fire that destroys and rages. We understand, church fan, that what comes out of our mouth does reveal our heart. And I know for many of us, we know that truth, but really understand that. Let's open our eyes. If I find out of my mouth there is constant angst and tension, if I am constantly shooting angry things, even if it's just by myself in the car when I'm cut off for the third time that day, what does what comes out of my mouth reveal about my heart? James wants us to see the damage and danger of the tongue, and he wants us to own it. Which is why Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew that if you're there before the Lord, he's speaking about the mouth and how it's used for, for evil. And he says, if you're there before the Lord at the altar and you're given your offering and it occurs to you that you've used your mouth and wronged a brother, leave your offering, get up and go set it right. You know, practical application today is as you think this, you know, wow, I've really been guilty in my speech of really coming after this person. I've really wronged them. You know, the most practical application you can do if they're in this room during the invitation, go walk over, say, hey, can we talk in the hallway and apologize? If they're not in this room, step out, pick up the phone, call them, apologize. That's one of the most practical applications you can put into seeing and recognizing where it's gone wrong. We've got to recognize, we've got to repent. Church family, if we're going to be unified, if we are going to be a body of Christ where the unity of the Spirit and the fellowship of the Spirit marks us like it did the church in Acts, then we cannot be a people of a duplicitous, fiery tongue. We cannot be a people who say, I love you, brother. It's so good to see you this morning. Can you believe what he's wearing? Did you smell how nasty that deodorant was? Can you believe down the line? It cannot coexist. The only way for us to be a body of Christ that reflects the Lord is to be a body of Christ who controls our tongues. But wait, no human can control their tongue, correct? But if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, brother and sister. And Scripture says when you came to faith in Christ, at that moment that you responded to the kindness and conviction of the Holy Spirit, and you said, Jesus, you're right. You're the way. You're the truth. You're the life. I trust you. You, I, you are Lord, and I need you to save me so I can worship you and know you as Lord. When that moment happens... The Holy Spirit of God comes in and it says, according to Ephesians, he fills you and he seals you. That ceiling permanent, can't leave, won't leave, there, done. That's the Greek, by the way, I've just simplified it. And it says, according to Galatians, that the fruit of the Spirit, what the Holy Spirit is seeking to produce by his power, by his might, by his grace in our lives, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. 
control. It also says there in Galatians chapter 6 that if we walk by the Spirit, meaning God, I need you. Lord, I need you. I recognize in humility that I need the Spirit to, con- to, to be the one that controls. I, I need the Spirit to be the one that empowers, and I'm resting upon His power. I, I set myself to believe the Word of the Lord. I act in light of what His Word says out of that faith. I seek to speak the things He commands to speak. I pray for His continued work. I, I submit myself to His transformation of my heart. When I do those things, that, that is what it looks like to walk in the Spirit, to trust and rest in the Holy Spirit of God. And it says this in Galatians, if you walk by the Spirit, it is impossible to gratify the desires of the flesh. You want to know how we tame the tongue, church family? We've got to learn how to walk in the Spirit, by the Spirit. And the fact that for many of us, our tongues Our tongues fan fire like Mario throwing fireballs all over the place is reflective of the fact that we are walking in our own flesh and not by the Spirit. But James also says that if we walk by the Spirit and in the Spirit's self-control seek to tame the tongue, oh, it won't just tame our tongue. It'll impact every little area of our life. If we can master the tongue by the Spirit's power and grace and leading, then we will be able to walk in self-control in all the other aspects of our life. And so we will point to the one true God. Because church family, here's the reality today. There is power in the tongue. Power of life and death. The tongue is able to be controlled by the Spirit, not by man. And if it's not controlled by the Spirit, it will burn like a raging inferno and leave devastation in its wake. That's why the stat is something like it takes 80 compliments to undo one negative statement in the human mind. Church family, there's power in the tongue. Will we be people who speak with the tongue of man or will we be people who speak with the tongue and spirit of Christ? Let's pray. Father, it is too easy. It is too easy to use our tongues in so many foolhardy ways. It is too easy to zing criticism. It is too easy to want to be in the know and either intentionally or unintentionally spread the flame of gossip. God, it's too easy to say harsh and unruly things that destroy others. God, because the tongue is a fire. But Jesus, thank you that for those of us in you, Holy Spirit, you live within and there is a means, there is a way, there is a, an ability by your grace, by your power, by your might, by walking in you, Holy Spirit, to, to tame and control the tongue, to use it not for evil, to, but to use it for good, to use it not to curse, but to bless, to use it to speak truth. So Lord, may, may we be willing to have our eyes opened and see today.
how our speech, our tone, our words, our thoughts reveal what's really being believed and residing in our hearts. And Lord, if there's any in this room today that as they ponder that question, they recognize, you know what? That I've never known any ability to tame my tongue. As I look at my tongue and what it reveals about my heart, I recognize that I do not know Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And Lord, may today be the day where they respond. May today be the day of their salvation. May today be the day, Holy Spirit, where they would know your indwelling and your sealing and your power to tame the most untamable of all beasts in this world, the human tongue. Holy Spirit, as you move, may we respond to you. Jesus, we look to you now. It's in your name we pray.